Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the 13th chapter of the letter written to the Hebrews, where we will be looking together at verses 8 through 14 this morning. That's Hebrews chapter 13. Again, we will look at 8 through 14. The writer of this epistle to the Hebrews has been in the final closing verses of this letter, reminding his hearers of the essential nature of the church of Jesus Christ. And I think we have clearly witnessed in looking at it together over the last several weeks that it is a message that these poor, afflicted, persecuted, and suffering men, of, men and women of faith desperately needed to have stirred up for their remembrance. Indeed, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look around the Christian church in our own day, I think we could probably all agree that a good stirring up of the memory regarding the excellency, the sufficiency of all that has been promised to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ as his church is still exactly what the church of Jesus Christ needs. Even in our own day, we see the masses moving away from the gospel to whatever is new and novel for the moment. Being content to live with symbols rather than their substance. But I want to tell you, the Word of God never paints that kind of picture of biblical faith for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the very power of salvation, according to the Apostle Paul. It's not simply a collection of facts that one either accepts or rejects merely in the realm of their intellect, but it, through the power of the Holy Spirit, stirs up the gift of God within us, faith, faith within the heart of the believer, and it allows someone to joyfully embrace Jesus Christ and all of his benefits. It's not something that merely affects the way we think, but it is a truth that affects every single aspect of our lives. That is, in one sense, the message here. Right? The gospel is power. It is the grace of God that transforms the life of the one that hears with ears which truly hear the beautiful call issuing forth from the gospel to come and to be reconciled to Almighty God. Beloved, it is a call to come to the throne of grace with the confidence of children, children and heirs of our Father in heaven. It is a call to come and delight in Almighty God and His holy law, which apart from Jesus Christ only speaks to us of our separation and our condemnation before the face of God and evokes anything and everything but delight for the one who's dead in his trespasses and sins. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is rightly only fear and trembling in the presence of God. But in Jesus Christ by faith, cloaked as it were in his perfection, there is delight in every single word that issues forth 
from the mouth of God. He is our delight. His word feeds our contentment in Jesus Christ. Our joy grows. Right? It transforms us. It gives to us very real rest in Jesus Christ. And we can never ever tire of drinking from this fountain with this, which is both refreshing and inexhaustible for the believer. Therefore, the writer has focused all his attention on the glory, the sufficiency, and the excellency that far surpasses all other revelation. All of which only existed to point us towards the Lord Jesus Christ. All scripture finds its meaning in the revealed Christ of Almighty God. And so the writer here, in closing this letter, makes application from this central and wonderful truth. The church of Jesus Christ is powerful because Jesus Christ is at its head, empowering it. Their afflictions were not something that should drive them into despair or drive them into hopelessness. Rather, they should see it as the the merciful and loving hand of Almighty God in disciplining them, in refining them, in molding them, making them into absolute reliance, complete, utter dependence upon God alone and His faithfulness. Therefore, rather than seeing their affliction as an occasion for them to flee back into the shadows of Judaism to find comfort amid so many fiery trials, they should persevere in the faith, clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, delighting in Him, even at the expense of every other comfort in this life. It was the very love of God that was doing this. And far from being designed to lead them into despair, its design was to cause them to delight in Jesus and to bring glory to God, who is and has always been and will always be faithful. They were not left to suffer in isolation, but God in His mercy and in His providence had made them a part of something altogether glorious, the beautiful bride of Jesus Christ, the church. And so he tells them they're to lean upon one another, even as they lean collectively upon God's faithfulness. They were to edify one another. They were to actively love one another, even as they themselves had been loved. They were to delight in the word of God, and that delight would be manifested in their grateful obedience to that word. They were to ignore the murmuring of their flesh and the devil, and they were to take God at his word by faith. They were to rest in his word, find his word sufficient as they steadily ran the race of this life toward that great city with the foundation whose builder and maker is God. To flee into the symbolic representation of redemption now, in the face of the revelation of the very substance of all of those shadows, would be the absolute height of folly. That's the point. And it would do nothing to alleviate their suffering. 
any relief that they would find would be temporary and fleeting at best. That's the context for the text that is before us this morning. And as I said, though the immediate context is these struggling Hebrews themselves, the rich truth that is put forward here really is for all of those who refer to themselves as the bride of Jesus Christ, the church. The gospel ought to shape everything that we do in this life. It should quiet our anxieties. It should relieve our temporary pains. It is the balm which soothes the pilgrim's wounds as he steadily makes his way toward Zion. And it is a truth that has existed forever before the foundations of the world itself. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for the true child of Almighty God, there is no place for us to flee but into his everlasting arms where you and I find comfort in the shadow of his wings. Beloved, as we move ever closer to the end of this very Christ-exalting epistle, may the timeless, that timeless truth resonate within all of our hearts and move us towards grateful, even joyful service within his unshakable kingdom to the glory of our unshakable king. So I'd like now for us to look to the word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read from the holy, inerrant, and infallible word, Hebrews chapter 13. Again, I will pick up with verse 8, and we will read through verse 14. Hear now the word of our Lord. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, And forever, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here... We have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. This is the reading of the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again to be able to come before your word this morning. We ask that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life. May we give our full attention to your word and hearing your word. May we be transformed by that word through the power of your spirit for the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that this letter written to the Hebrews really seems to drive home for us is the importance of our understanding the Bible, the Scripture through the lens of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In many ways, there's really no other book in the canon of sacred scripture quite like it. The more time I've spent immersed in it week after week in my 
preparation for this series of sermons, the more I see that understanding the types in light of their anti-type is essential to gleaning the riches that are contained here for the child of God. The writer wrote this letter not simply as a rebuke or even a pep talk for his followers. He wrote it to teach them who Jesus Christ truly was and who he is and what that meant for them, especially considering the situation they found themselves in. He's teaching them to lay aside the elementary principles and to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his revealed glory. And think about the many ways that he's done that so far in this letter. He has shown them clearly that Jesus is the ultimate revelation to which all other revelation existed to point towards. Right? He's better than the angels. If Almighty God punished those who rejected the words of his angels, how much more will he punish those who reject so great a salvation as we have been shown in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron and all of the other high priests under the Old Covenant. He was typified in Melchizedek. He alone offered a better sacrifice. He himself was that sacrifice once and for all of those whom he came to save. He is the mediator of a better covenant. He is the anti-type that all of the types were pointing us towards. And when the anti-type has come, the types have served their purpose and are no longer necessary. A study of these types, such as the one that we have by necessity been involved in in our look together at this letter, has given to us many blessings as we've looked at them. At least I hope it has. The Levitical instruction, for example, shows to us through the shadows the symbolic representation of the whole of redemption by means of these many vivid appeals to our senses. The blood of the sacrifice. The taking of life gave a powerful illustration as to the severity of our sin and the guilt associated with it. You can imagine the Jewish penitent standing in front of this very vivid representation of the cost of his sin before a holy God who remained separated from the people back in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. And this is but one of many. Every part of the tabernacle was pointing to something greater than the shadow and anticipated that which was still to come. And the writer of this letter makes that point in chapter 10 when he said, speaking of the law, the law having a shadow of good things to come. So there are certain benefits for us in looking closely at them. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. First, the closer we look at the types in the Old Testament, and we begin to see the way in which Jesus Christ uniquely serves as the substance behind the shadows, the more of his true and majestic glory is ours to behold. 
We walk away from them with a more thorough understanding of who Jesus really was and who he is and what, in fact, he came to this fallen world in order to accomplish. We see to an even greater degree the depth of his love and the purpose of his work, and we are moved towards a much deeper appreciation of the grace of God in that he sent his only begotten son to purchase us through his precious blood. We get an even deeper sense of his absolute ownership of us. And beloved, we should be left standing in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should move us more and more into that burning desire within our own hearts to worship and to take delight in him and to enjoy every single one of his gifts. We also, in looking at these types and shadows, I think, gain a much deeper appreciation for the increasingly manifested divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. We see clearly in the design and harmony of the Bible as a a whole, its unmistakable divine authorship. And again, we find even further reason to delight in every single word contained within our Bibles. Beloved, we are encouraged We are sustained. We are moved towards God by such wonderful knowledge. And we see in all of it that there has always been essential unity in God's gracious dealing with his people. Jesus Christ really is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The picture of our redemption has been more and more revealed to us. However, its substance has not changed. And so now the writer of this letter makes one final appeal to his struggling flock in order to end all doubts which might exist as to the extent of Jesus Christ's far surpassing superiority to all other things. And if we're not careful here, we could fall into the error of thinking that the writer is here just referring to the wrangling over clean and unclean foods that every Jewish person would have been remarkably familiar with. And it's very tempting to do so here and to sort of just gloss over the deeper meaning of this careful writer who seeks first and foremost in this letter always to exalt the name above all other names, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Undoubtedly, food and what was permissible and impermissible was an issue that these converts from Judaism to Christianity would have had to have wrestled with. We see even the degree to which the Apostle Peter himself struggled with it in the book of Acts when God made it clear to him in his dream that all foods were now lawful for him. However, I do not think that this is the writer's intent here. This picture, the picture here, is much more glorious and edifying for the people of God than just that. I want you to look at what he says. He first warns them of the danger of falling into the trap of strange and new winds of doctrine. He's speaking here of doctrine that takes something other than the grace of Almighty God in the person and work of Jesus Christ as its grand central theme. Look what he says. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace, 
not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And I think the key to understanding this reference to food is found not in simply the history of the Jewish people concerning foods that are clean and unclean, but its connection to the altar in verses 10 and 11. Did you notice that in 10 and 11? The writer says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside of the camp. So we have to ask the question. The food under consideration here is tied to the altar and to the fact that the Christian's altar and the food that flows from it are not for those who serve in the tabernacle. And then this, there is this reference to the sin offering and the animal sacrifice's body itself being burned up or consumed outside of the camp. So the question is, what is the writer referring to? Again, he's pointing them to the type in order to deepen their understanding, indeed deepen their appreciation for the antitype. He's pointing them back to the shadow and he's calling on them to understand it in light of the substance. And beloved, he is pointing them here towards the one offering that all others paled in comparison with for the Jewish person. He's looking back to the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. It alone was unique from all of the other sacrifices under the Levitical law in that the priest and those who were serving in the tabernacle, indeed, not even the penitents themselves, no one could eat any of this particular sacrifice. It is described for us in Leviticus chapter 16. I'm not going to read it all this morning as we've looked at it briefly before in this series already, but I am going to summarize it as briefly as I can for you. The Day of Atonement was the only day of the year that anyone at all could ever enter into the Holy of Holies. And even then, it could only be the high priest who could enter, and only after he had spilled much blood. First, he had to sacrifice a bull and a ram. The bull was a sin offering, and the ram was a burnt offering in order to atone for his own sin, so that he could then carry out the sacred duty of making the sacrifice that would atone for the sin of all the people. Then two goats were chosen by Lot from the herds. One was to be set apart for the Lord as a sacrifice to atone for the transgressions of the people. The other was to be set apart as the scapegoat, which we've talked about at length some time before. The priest would burn incense on the incense altar. Thus, when entering the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, the smoke from the incense would serve to at least somewhat diminish his view of the mercy seat where the glory of the Lord was over. 
He would then take the blood of the sacrifice from the bull upon his finger and he would sprinkle it seven times before the mercy seat. Then he would go out and he would kill the goat for the sin offering and he'd do the same with that blood. Only this time he would consecrate everything. Then taking both the blood of the bull and of the goat, he would put it on the horns of the altar. And when everything had been atoned for, he would place his hand upon the head of the scapegoat and he would confess over the scapegoat all of the iniquities, all of the transgressions of the people. And then that goat would be set free into the wilderness, thus carrying away with it the iniquities of the people of God. Then only the fat from the sacrifice was burned upon the altar as a sweet aroma to the Lord. But everything else from the sacrifice was to be carried outside of the camp and burned entirely. And this is the uniqueness of this particular offering. There was no food, there was no nourishment to be gleaned from it. In fact, the people were to fast the whole day and afflict themselves on this particular day. And it was to be a perpetual offering offered once a year, every single year. And beloved... As you listen to the ceremony of that particular day, I hope that you can begin to see some of the parallels. Time will not allow us to dig any deeper into all of them this morning, save one. The sacrifice cleansed the people from sin, and it had to be offered again and again and again because its cleansing was temporary. And there was no sustenance to be found in this sacrifice. It did not provide nourishment for anyone. But it simply pointed to another sacrifice that would ultimately come, that would ultimately be carried outside of the camp, and that sacrifice would actually provide sustenance for all of those for whom it was freely given. One that would feed all all of those who come to this particular altar for eternity. Look at what he says. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice that would atone for the sin of those who are cleansed by his blood for all of eternity. He and he alone was given to be our food and our drink, our nourishment. You remember in John 6, when Jesus offends so many of his would-be followers when he tells them that his flesh is food indeed, and that his blood is is drink indeed, and so that everyone must come and feed upon him for life. Have you ever read that? It is he that is the much-needed nourishment of our souls. He is the bread of life. It was him that was seen in the manna which fell from heaven. 
It was only the substance of the shadow that could ever supply the food needed to sustain weary souls. The day of affliction because of sin ended when the Lord Jesus Christ suffered outside of the camp for our sin and became our food unto eternal life. Beloved, do you see it? Because it truly is a beautiful picture. We see here that Jesus Christ is set forth every bit as conspicuously in Leviticus as he is in John's gospel. He indeed is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, we are to flee from any doctrine that is not rooted in him. Do not be carried away with any foolish novelties that only seek to divert your eyes away from Jesus Christ. It is him that was set before the people in the shadows of the ceremony of the law. And it was to him, it was him to which the writers of the New Testament seek to point you towards. In love. Beloved, I ask you this morning, do you see him? We see here that great divide that exists every time the wonders of the grace of God are open to us in and through Jesus Christ. There are those who come to the Christian altar, away from the tabernacle, away from the temple, away from the city of Jerusalem, outside of the camp to where the substance is. where the food and the nourishment really are. You see, Jesus Christ is the altar. Jesus Christ is the food. And those who are vainly still living in the shadows of the law have no right to Him. They have rejected the substance and somehow found themselves satisfied in the shadow. And it's a tragedy. That's what the writer is doing here for these Hebrew converts who are feeling as if they may be comforted in returning to the temple system. Returning, as it were, to Jerusalem and to the camp of shadows. He is substantiating his assertion here that they who remain in that system have no claim on the true altar and no claim upon the real food. They have no real title of any authority. Being not united, not joined to Christ to eat and partake of the only food that will ever sustain them, not simply for a moment, but for eternity. They have no claim upon all the benefits of Jesus Christ flowing from the true temple, which they seek in the symbols now divorced from their meaning and fulfillment. How could you ever go back? One moves from the symbol to the substance, but never from the substance back to the symbol. Beloved, do you see the implication here? You and I must not ever venerate the symbol. We must venerate the substance. 
And if we have seen the substance, we cannot help but to venerate. Worship becomes our delight, our highest joy on this side of glory. The writer of this Christ-exalting letter has been seeking from start to finish to exhibit to these Christian converts the superiority of Christianity. They cannot be content with anything less than Jesus Christ. Those who come to Christ by faith come and eat of his flesh and partake of his cleansing blood and they are satisfied. They are nourished. And they do it no longer in the temple, in the holy city, but outside of the camp where Jesus was. And we are not seeking our residence in just any city, but leaving the camp as those who have rejected him the city of those who have chosen to live for the shadow of the reality, we move away from the city towards another city. Towards the city where Jesus is. Beloved, do you understand even more clearly now why we, by nature of our union with Jesus Christ by faith, must be pilgrims on this earth? Jesus moved outside of the camp and suffered the full wrath of Almighty God away from His presence. There He purchased us with His blood amid wretched filth outside of the gate where the lepers were supposed to live. Where the refuse and the dung heaps were. Paying our price in full by willingly taking our penalty. And now we are ever moving, inching closer and closer to the heavenly reality where he is. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, supplying us with absolutely everything we need in order to come home. He is sanctifying our works. He is sanctifying our prayers. He is sanctifying our thoughts. His spirit moving us along in the race of life towards him. You understand, if the high priest had eaten of this offering, it would not not have atoned for anything. It would have taken on the character of a peace offering. If the whole sacrifice had been consumed upon the altar, it would have taken on the character of a burnt offering. And it would not have atoned even temporarily for the sins of the people of God. But the sin offering pointed to the fact that Judaism, the Levitical law, would have to be abandoned before any could eat or derive the benefit of the Christian altar that it served to illustrate. In Jesus Christ's sin offering, we are permitted to come to him and to feed upon a sacrifice of the highest and the holiest kind. Beloved, it's why we are here. Do you understand? We come here to feed upon Him. My duty as a minister of the Word is to show you Jesus. He is the sacrifice upon which you come and you feed to the nourishment of your soul. He is the food that alone brings life, the drink which quenches all thirst forever. I must preach Him. 
Because there is no other sacrifice. There is no other food. And you and I must eat. Do you see? Beloved, I hope you see it. And I hope you take delight in it. I hope it gives you a fresh set of eyes to see the joy of his table. The heart cannot be established before God where sins are not remitted. You must come to him. Everything that Jesus did upon the earth, he did to fulfill the scriptures. He's not simply the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, but truly he is the fulfillment and the meaning behind every single type. His gracious work left all of those who reject him for the temporary shadows and the temporary tabernacle and the temporary city absolutely without excuse. Shortly after his death, They were all destroyed. The temple was thrown down. The city was sacked. And the people were scattered. But to those who flee to him, he remains steadfast, immovable, unshakable, ever calling, ever guiding us towards home. Though the strange winds of false doctrine blow all around us today, beloved, they are not to distract us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you see him as he has revealed himself, you can never be satisfied with anything less than him. Are you satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your delight for all of eternity? Do you long to be with his people, worshiping him for who he is, for what he has done, for the treasure that he has poured out upon his people? Beloved, if that is true for you, then let it be reflected in your life, lived out as a sacrifice of praise. Let it be manifested in your grateful obedience to his word. And let it be manifested in your well-nourished flesh as you feed upon the bread of life. Amen? Let's pray.